0: Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic
1: empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those two
2: With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming. On ABC Radio.
3: It hit in a way where, out of Utopia, a lot of our women were taking their children back into the bush and hiding because the army rolled out and they were scared of another stolen generation happening. I remember the story my mum and Nana were telling me when they had to explain what pornographic meant to men. The men were so in shock. They were like, that doesn't happen out here. When it hit the intervention, it also broke our men.
1: This is Speaking Out, I'm Larissa Barrent. Tonight we're bringing you the second in the online series, The Endless Intervention, First Nations Speak Out. The Stronger Futures in the Northern Territory Act is set to run its course by July next year. Implemented in 2012, the policy was based on the Northern Territory Emergency Response or Intervention introduced in 2007 by the Howard Government. Relying on the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act, the intervention was used to justify a range of measures that have been widely criticised as racially discriminatory and paternalistic. They include greater policing in prescribed communities and forcing welfare recipients onto income management. In 2010, the United Nations Special Rapporteur, James Anaya, declared the measures racially discriminatory and an infringement on the human rights of Aboriginal Territorians. So what is life like for those living under these laws and those who work with them? You're about to hear some very personal accounts of the damage the intervention and the Stronger Futures legislation that followed it have had on First Nations communities. Amelia coonath is the granddaughter of Rosalie Coonath-Monks and a strong advocate for the rights of First Nations youth in her own right. Kumanjai Bunbajee Hoda is a Lardal man from Mornington Island who has spent more than 20 years working in the First Nations media sector. And Auntie Elaine Peckham is a Central Aranda custodian who was instrumental in the establishment of the Central Australian Strong Women's Alliance. She's also been an active member of the Intervention Rollback Action Group and a member of Australia's Council of Thirteen Grandmothers. Let's hear from Auntie Elaine now.
4: My name's Elaine. If you all well know, I grew up in Alice Springs in the early 50s and struggles that we've been going through for many years with the intervention. And I was actually out on my homeland in 2007 when the intervention was put upon us. And from that day on, I have not stopped speaking out about what how devastating the intervention had done personally where we are today still speaking out about it and it just happened that day when I came into town I didn't know about the intervention I hadn't even heard on the radio at home I went around to my son's place and I was looking after one of my grandchildren while my son was going out bush and he said he came home that afternoon to his mum he said to me you better go down and check about your settlement payments and I said my son Farrah and I am doing everything right. I'm getting my rent taken out of my pension and things like that. And he said, on things are changing. The government has changed all that now. And I said, oh, OK, I will do that. I said, I'll go down tomorrow. And on that day going down to Centrelink, change my, not change, but mainly stop and think, is this really happening to us? Being in there in that room at Santa and um, looking around and seeing all our people standing up in the line like a all of our cattle, like you look at on when you're out on the station going for a drink of water. Yeah, I just couldn't believe that this was happening. That's how it came about. So I had my interview with them that day, and I they had this computer set up in language, and I said, we could take that away. I said, I could speak English very well. I went to school. I got my education. Although I don't have a degree or anything like that, it was enough for us to be able to speak up and have a voice and have a say at what the intervention would have done to us. So that was part of my, well, I call it my journey, walking into Centre League that day. It was very um, hurtful. Really, I couldn't believe what was happening. I um, asked if I could see a um, manager from Centrelink. And do I have to? Do you really think? And I said, yes, I'm entitled to speak to the manager. So I'm not too happy with my interview. And she said to me, oh, I'll go and check if there's someone around They may be too busy. And I said, too busy, but yet you can sit with me and hear what I had to say. But you wouldn't even give me the opportunity to say what I wanted to say. But anyway, that went on for about an hour or something and I finally got to see a young woman that was working in there, an Aboriginal lady, and uh, went over there and she said, me, I don't believe you're not too um, happy with the interview. And I said, no, I'm not, not at all. And I said, after this um, interview I had with them, I said, I'd like to go down, I'm going to go down to the library to document everything we had said that day, while it was still in my head. And I looked at her and I said to her, look to you, I said, here you standing up here with your, what's your name, house, you head and then have those things, who they are, and things like that, you know, looking so proud and being there. And I said, just take a look around the room and see the people that are there. You know, they could be your auntie, they could be your grandmother, they could be a rally of yours, you know? Anyway, we had that conversation, and then she said to me later, I said, Well, I, can I go and finish my interview with this? And they passed me on to another lady, so I had a second interview. And the young girl said to me, Aunt Elaine, she said to me, Would you um, give me your, um, when you've done it? And I said, at least you had the decency and the pay respect to me and um, listen to me, to what I had to say. Whereas the lady that was interviewed didn't even. Want to know about it, but anyway, after that, I had my interview with the lady, and as we walked out the door, her and I, a young coloured woman, walked out the door, and she um, said to me, Elaine, she said, "I'm not from Alice Springs," and I said, "Oh, I'm sorry," I said, "I didn't really want it to come across to her like I was blaming her. I was taking my anger and frustration out on this young young woman." And she said, no, I'm not from Alice Springs, I'm from Western Australia. So I ended up apologising to her, said I'm sorry. But she said, I am married to a local man from the Northern Territory. I never saw that young lady for the next about two or three weeks later I was asked to go and have another interview. And going through all that again, like it just seems like everything that we had done before and getting pain payments all taken out, It was no longer there on the computer. That's how it seemed to me. And that was the moment I thought, now I'm going to do something about this, and which on that day, from that day on, I had not stopped and speaking up, being a voice for our people. And I will continue doing that for the rest of my life. Unless you go through something like this, with the pain and the hurt, I know a lot of people can speak so easy about it, but even now, it is bringing peace to, to my eyes. But I just hope that the intervention will go away and let us go on with our lives in peace and be there for our grandchildren and our great grandchildren to have a better life. Like I say, where does our journey lead each and every one of us? When is it going to stop the intervention? Thank you.
1: Thank you, Auntie. It's so powerful to hear. What's happened to you and it makes clear that we talk about these as policies but they roll out and they affect people in a very real way. I know one of the things that you've been very strong about is making sure that things change so it's better for young people coming through. One of the things the intervention claimed to do was to look after children as a mother, a grandmother, auntie, I was wondering if you could share with us, you know, your concerns for young people in the Territory and what you think needs to be done to keep them safe and protected and strong in their culture. Well,
4: I think you've heard we have got a strong grandmother's group of Central Australia. We have been working very hard. We don't get any government support. It's all voluntary work that we're doing. I think those kids on street, Dad, at least haven't, time to be able to say and talk to them and hear what they've got to say but with the intervention when we had to do all the uh, workshops on how do we see it and how how it affected us especially people out on those communities a lot of our people have never had the chance to have an education like us in, in our Springs. and out of that i uh, called it my central Australian strong winter line I did all my training in Canberra because I wanted to know about the legality of all that before I can um, actually set myself up. Not set myself up, but the younger generation to come behind us and let's be that voice. So I did, and uh, first I started out doing the Fed Hollows Foundation and then I did the National One Oxfam. And that gave me the ability or the strength to say, yes, we still have our voices. Nothing has taken that away from us. No matter what they do or how they do it, our voices are there, still there. Yeah, and even now with the grandmothers we've set up, we want to feel that we're there for all of the children out on the street and stop getting them from getting hurt. and want them to have a life that they can have children of their own and be for their own children. And not go through what we had done with older ones with the intervention.
1: Arnie, just also picking up on your work as a elder female leader in the community, one of the things that the intervention claimed to do was to protect women. From your perspective, what's the best way that we can support? First Nations women in the Northern Territory, what sorts of things do they need since the intervention didn't really work in protecting them?
4: To listen, show respect and be a good listener. Don't be judgmental of who these women are, where they come from or who they are. We are all the same. No matter what colour or race we are, we are one. And we are grandmothers, great-grandmothers, and that's will be never taken away from us.
1: I guess the other thing that we've been talking about today is the importance of the idea of truth-telling, which is really about the broader Australian community learning more about the history of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and what's happened to them, but also what the political aspirations are. And I guess a big part of that will be making sure that people understand what the intervention was and what it did to people, to hear stories like the ones you're sharing with us today. Can you share with us what your views are about the importance of truth-telling and listening to story? Just hear
4: our voices, whether we speak out as a person
1: that's been through the intervention and
4: hear our voices and stop being judgmental. And if. The ones that are there, like in the government or whatever, in those higher positions, support us. Because we've been through enough now, as it is. I don't know how we last this long. I just don't know. We're survivors. And we will continue surviving. But no matter what they do to us or how they do it, we will still be out there. And there's no turning back now. We've got to go forward. And we keep saying... The, you know the government, what did you do to us? It's not going to stop us from having that voice and having the same. and be proud of who we are as average of people till the day that, yeah, things will, we just hope, we live in hope that things will change for the better. But what more can we do for people to understand where we are coming from? What is it? You know, that's stuff that'll stay with us for the rest of their lives. And a young one, yes, they can go out and get an education, but our cultural values and obligations that we grew up with has kept us so strong and very independent, been independent all our lives. And even when the Land Rights Act came in, and I went back to stay on my mother's homeland out on the West map, I grew up in Alice Springs, born in Alice Springs, been through the simulation, where our average of people like myself weren't even allowed to live in, in the outskirts of Dallas Springs. But we are still here today. And I'm one of those women, like the rest of us in Alice Springs. And we're the only state in Australia that all this being put on us in an ordered territory. What else can they do to us? Yeah, we've just continued being a voice, having our say and keep going, but I still feel that we've still got a long way to go, but we must never, ever give up to our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren.
1: Thank you, Aunty Elaine. That was just so powerful, your words, but of course your actions as well. And I think it's very humbling when we see the resilience and the effort and the ongoing strength that you show in, in fighting. And I just want to share a couple of comments that have been made while you've been speaking because I think they sum up how we feel about you. And one's from Georgina Gartland who says, full strength to Auntie Elaine who should not have had to put up with such horrific discrimination at a time when one should be enjoying children and grandchildren. Full strength for all your work with GMA. And another one from Michelle. This endless intervention is one of the greatest and littlest known oppressions in Australian history. So shameful to we other privileged people. Auntie Elaine is one of the nation's great heroes. And I think that's a lovely way for us to thank you for your words and sharing your wisdom, for your strength, and for showing us what true resilience and wisdom and leadership means. Thank you, Auntie Elaine.
4: Thank you very much and thank you for being a good
1: listener. Thank you. Well, somebody else who has been there right from the start is Amelia Cooneth-Monks and Amelia was one of the very first voices and really stepped up, I think. I want to acknowledge the work she did right from the start, supporting her grandmother Rosalie, but through doing that work, found herself perhaps unexpectedly as one of the most powerful voices for young people affected by the intervention. Amelia's just continued to be a strong advocate for her people, a strong advocate for the rights of Aboriginal people, and a strong voice against injustice and oppression. course she followed in big footsteps with her grandmother but I think it's safe to say particularly as a representative of the voice of the experience of young people under the intervention her voice in its own right was a powerful contributor to the debate so Amelia it's Wonderful to see you here. You were so so young and when you started, you're still young, especially compared to most of us on the call today. But it does make me realise how much you've grown up through being an advocate because you were so young. So thank you so much for being with us. I'll let you tell us a little bit about what you'd like to share with us. Thank you, Larissa.
3: Yeah, I was really young when the intervention hit. I was probably about 15, 16 and it, it hit in a way where out of Utopia, a lot of our women were taking their children back into the bush and hiding because the army rolled out and they were scared of another stolen generation happening. I remember the story my mum and Nana were telling me that when they had to explain what pornographic meant to men the men were so in shock they were like that doesn't happen out here we don't do that to our children. When it hit the intervention it also broke our men because it blanketed all of our men as pedophiles and a lot of our men were broken in a particular way of where they were scared to touch their children you know I've seen a lot of my uncles holding their babies with loving and caring hearts just looking at their young ones whereas you know, you do, you see them and they do still get nervous. It was very struggling to come to terms with what the Howard government actually did to our First Nations people in 2007. And then we got Rudd to come in and we thought, oh, here we go, a person who might be able to take that away. It didn't, he didn't do much at all to help remove that particular policy. I think with the Northern Territory Emergency Response itself it's done a lot of damage to where we can try and repair but there's so much distrust between first nations and non first nations people especially with our government there's very little trust for me when i have to speak to a person who's in policy making i don't trust them that that trust has been very broken and when they say yes we'll we'll sit down and listen to you but do they really take our voice seriously enough? You take a look at the statement from Uluru. Did that really get listened to properly? Because that came from the heart of all of us First Nations people. And to see where our young ones are today, it breaks my heart because from someone who's grown up with Grandmother's Law, from a very strong person, and all my grandmothers around, it saddens me to know that our children who are supposed to be our bright future, don't have that anymore because of what the policies have done from what the intervention has done and stronger futures. That has It has disconnected our kids to having a connection to our country, to their grandfathers' and grandmothers' law. Our kids, they're so confused and they don't understand what's going on. Thus, they make these bold decisions to just run amok. We say run amok, but really they're just lost. And our grandmothers in Alice Springs, who have started going around to our young people and talking to them, is very good because it's reconnecting the kids back, bringing them back home and saying, hey, we are here. Don't forget that you have your grandmothers. From what I can remember about how the intervention is still going, it's been 14 years. I think we're still in a depressed state as a people. I feel that when I go back home onto my homelands out at Utopia, I feel my people are just sitting there not knowing what's going on. And we have people, especially from government organizations, come out there and tell us what they're going to do, but it never really eventuates anywhere. There's really no, there's no hope. You see hopelessness in their eyes. You can even feel it within the earth itself, in Mother Earth itself. You can feel it. It's like dying, probably worse than dying, because you can feel it 10 times more when you're walking on country. You feel your ancestors saying, hey, we are here, come back to us. But government policies dictate completely different. So, I don't have really much to say anymore because we've been talking for nearly 14 years on this particular policies, and we've got one more year to go on stronger futures. And where exactly have we gone as a particular nation? Australia has not, in my eyes, not grown up, and we're not ready, obviously, by the looks of it, to move forward with where our government is heading. There's no way that we're ready to unite as one. Us First Nations people, have come more over the bridge and extended our hand and saying, hey, we're ready for you guys to come now. Come learn our story. Come understand what we've been through. Walk a mile in our shoes. And if they did, they probably would have not survived like we have. I think especially as a young person who has watched my men go through turmoil, I've watched my grandmother sit in her chair and she's just... She's feeling frustrated of not knowing of where our future is because it's, our future is so uncertain, especially our young ones who do go and get an education. But that education does not instil into them what we need to survive in today's society. They just push them kids through the education system, Yep, you've graduated. Good luck out there. They're not ready for what the world is like. Especially in today's society. My, I've watched my sister. She's just graduated last year and she already feels the pressure of getting a job, of not being able to be a kid anymore. It's like once you graduate, you've got to jump straight into something straight away. You can't actually sit down and relax and go and do things anymore. You've got to get in and help build the economy somehow. So our kids do fear for that because it's a, dark future it's a bleak future for them you know a lot of our young ones do commit suicide no one talks about that what we do is we talk about it afterwards after the fact that our children have killed themselves and it's not just our young ones it's also our middle age group as well who think those and our elders they're like what what is the point of staying on this earth when there is no hope of absolutely reconnecting with our white brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying that it's all of our white brothers and sisters. There are some amazing people out there who have helped us along the way. You take a look at what Michelle Harrison did, what Jeff McMullen has done, what John Pilger is still doing. There are great white brothers and sisters out there who do stand with us and they fall with us as well. I think with what we talk about, and how the intervention slash stronger future has affected us, it's affected us in a way that we don't know how to say we're done talking because all we do is just talk about it. Where is the change going to come? How do we get from point A to point B again? How do we become that strong voice?
1: Thank you, Amelia. I wonder if you could share with us, as we mentioned when we were just starting to chat you know, you found yourself at a very young age. This terrible policy got rolled out. Your grandmother was immediately a part of the huge community movement to challenge it. And you, whether you were planning to or not, became part of the very strong spokespeople. I wonder if you could share with us what you learned from your grandmother at that time, that you might have continued to utilise as her wisdom on how to be an advocate and uh, how to stand strong?
3: I think what I've learned since during that time with my grandmother and from Nana is that never to back down or give up because once you give up and lie down, that's it. They've won the battle, whereas we're still surviving. We're still fighting those battles we're like, hang on, we've got to keep going, we've got to keep pushing. We've got to maintain who we are. I'm not just Amelia Monks. I'm Amelia Rosemarie Kinoth Monks. I have a skin name that I got from my grandmother. I'm not just a name from what the white man birth certificate says I am. I have an Aboriginal name. That's what my grandmother has taught me even now. It's, it has been instilled in me of who I am. And who I am defines me of where I can help my people. I am studying to be a lawyer. My grandmother has given me the courage to do that. I want to be a lawyer for my people so I can help them. I want to be actually a human rights lawyer so that I can change policies and ensure that the government won't do anything what they have done to us. It's been a roller coaster, what we have gone through. I think for me being someone who has been a spokesperson for my particular generation and hopefully the future generation that's coming up. I don't think I have really noted that I was a part of that particular movement there. I just sort of said, yep, I'll help my grandmother. I will help her fight this particular battle. And it, it has been a very big struggle. It's been a very big struggle because you do, you see our young ones, especially my um, sister's generation, the hopelessness that they have for not wanting to be a part of what our great society can be, it's heartbreaking. Uh, I don't think our young ones understand that we actually need them. They're, They're going to be the ones who will be able to make the change that is needed to come. I think that they're going to be the ones that are going to make a treaty happen. Even though that's going to be a long and brutal process, they're going to be the ones to keep pushing that forward because we're passing on that mantle like our grandmothers and grandfathers pass the mantle onto us. We pass it on to our next generation to make sure that they're fighters, to make sure that they have the steel, iron bar- backbone that they need to come and deal with what the government is doing, the policies. That's what they need to tackle. And they have to have the heart of steel to actually deal with that because... If you're too emotional and get very angry and frustrated at those policies, and it can can take away what your argument is trying to be. For me to actually get my point sometimes across, I have to write out my anger and frustration in poetry form. So then it helps me realise, right, I know what I need to say now. I know which lines of direction. And then after I've done that, I go back and write another poem. It helps me keep my emotions in check.
1: I should just say there's a lot of positive comments in the chat if you get a chance about what a great idea it is for you to become a human rights lawyer. There's much anticipation about what you're going to achieve once you go (laughs) down that path. And one of my favourite comments from G Man is your mum and Nana would be proud of you. One word, Amelia, respect. I just wanted to just pick up on the treaty idea. Obviously, it's something that's being looked at in the Northern Territory and it's been a, a much longer conversation from mob saying that this is one of the things that's needed. From your perspective, does it give you hope that those processes are, are underway and what would you like to see happen as part of a treaty process?
3: Well, I think because there are processes involved now since I think the idea of treaty was brought up in the 90s and to where we are now still talking about treaty, that in itself is amazing that we've still persevered in saying we want that. What I'd like to see come out of it is First Nations and non-First Nations people standing together as equals and being able to come to the table and give our ideas and not being able to have that idea squashed so that when we're sitting around that table, all ideas and opinions can be accepted where no one is judged I think that's where I'd like to see come out of treaty.
1: There's been a fair bit of comment in the commentary and from the chats this morning that such a process needs to make sure it respects the cultural authority of the right people. So that's always a good note in terms of the process being as important as the outcome. Just finally, Amelia, the intervention, as we mentioned, was supposed to be about protecting women and children As you've mentioned, in terms of the statistical profile as well as from the lived experience of people speaking out about what the impact of the intervention has been on them, that there have been a range of issues facing young people as a result of the intervention. Increased surveillance from police, which has translated into increased overrepresentation in prisons. You mentioned, of course, the very serious issue of suicide, which has also been something that's been particularly increasing amongst young people. And we've seen the number of Indigenous children going into out-of-home care increase as well well so I just wonder from your perspective you've worked really hard to highlight what needs to change with an audience of people listening who would obviously be keen to do and support whatever they thought could make a difference what do you think are the the main things that need to change in terms of what how it will be different for the next generation of young people coming through
3: For the future, I hope for, and this has been one of the biggest struggles, I think, for me to come to terms at how alcohol and drugs have overtaken us, especially those who have been through intergenerational trauma. I hope for the best for my next generation for the future, that where they will be able to go back onto their homelands and absolutely sit out there and not have to worry about drunks or whatever coming home and running amok out there and causing trouble. I think for me personally, I think some of the big alcoholic stores, especially in Alice, I know there's so many little stores in there that sell a lot of alcohols. You don't need that many, maybe one or two, but I think what's really needed is for our people to be on homelands and to be able to reconnect with their ancestors and their law and culture. We've become so dependent on holding a white man's hand and saying, yes, please help me, help me help myself. We know how to help ourselves, we do. We're just scared to let go of that hand now. And unfortunately that's where our generation is. I hope that in the future for our next generation, that there is somehow a way of where we're back on our homeland and connected with our people again.
1: Lovely, powerful words, Amelia. Thank you so much for all the advocacy you've you've continued to do, for being such an inspiration and a strong voice. And as I mentioned from the comments, I'm sure everyone can see what a wonderful legacy your grandmother leaves in having fostered you through. So, thank you so much, Amelia. Now it's my really great pleasure to introduce Kumanjai Bambaji Hoda Wat. I first met him at the beginning of the intervention and he has been an absolute inspiration to me and many others, a very strong voice. The speakers today have highlighted how One of the really heinous impacts of the intervention, the narrative around it was its impact on Aboriginal men. And I have to say, this is a man to me who exemplifies all of the strength and resilience and wisdom of our men. Just a a fabulous role model for the people around him, but has also been a really strong, unwavering voice about the intervention itself and its impacts. So I'll hand over to you. I should also just say that Kumanjai also uses a very powerful platform through First Nations media, over 20 years' experience with Karma and he writes for NITV, Courier Mail, Indigenous X, The Guardian, so also a voice that you can keep an eye out for to continue to hear what he has to say. So I'll uh, hand over to you to give us your reflections, your many reflections, my friend.
2: Thanks, Rosa. So yeah, I guess when the intervention began, I remember specifically when it began, we were just coming back from Arakun up in Western Cape York. And I think we were in the airport in Cairns or about to come back to Mbandua when it was announced. And yeah, I guess it was pretty shocking for everyone to sort of think that they could have that audacity to really push that sort of drive of colonialism on top of colonialism again, yeah, to sort of reinforce that devastation. And then so I was working at KAMA, Central Australian Aboriginal Media Association, First Nations Community Radio, and went down to Canberra as part of the Central Australian delegation or to cover that as it happened. I think it was the combined Aboriginal organisations. So I actually sat behind Pat Turner when she made the statement in Parliament House, calling it the Trojan horse, which pretty much it has proven to be. So um, that's the Guardia Whitefellows sort of coming in again, using this platform or this facade, a bit of a pantomime that they get to, you know, guinea pig some of these social policies on Aboriginal people, the income management, the welfare quarantine, might change the name Emergency Response to Stronger Futures, but it's still all part of the same package, just a way to test out these things and let the government, the governors and their mates just continually get richer off the backs of testing out these policies on us and then on uh, marginalised and oppressed or poor people as well. Then also in 2008, we went down for the convergence on Canberra which was a national get-together of First Nations from around the country. That was already organised well before the national apology was even conceived. So, yeah, uh, whether the intervention was part of a political ploy as well from the Howard government to try and stay in power as well obviously didn't work. Rudd came in and said he would make the apology that Howard and Co. wouldn't give. But, you know, we were there, stood alongside some of the old men and people there, aren't here anymore so it's pretty hard to sort of take that you know they can make an apology for taking the kids away and and yet continually or not continually support policy regimes that keep oppressing us and pushing us further down and sort of accelerate some of that incarceration of our youth and you know then we had like tony abbott coming in and taking down undercutting our legal services try to talk with one hand about helping us and then Taking away with the other. So, yeah, sort of that double speak. You know, you've uh, talked about hearing our voices. You know, well, how much can we continually sort of speak up, stand up and speak out against these injustices? And still, it falls on deaf ears, talking to brick walls. You know, i oh, merely a strong woman talking about the treaty talks. I mean, I was at the um, Uluru convention, also went to the Cairns regional summit. And of course Noel Pearson, you know, he gets to have his little spin on it. And then went to the Uluru Convention doing photojournalism for NITV and just sort of get to see that facade again sort of play out, trying to say that, yeah, you know, we're getting all the people together when I guess, you know, it sort of didn't really I guess that authenticity or or the integrity of trying to get valid representation. We saw how government strip away Atzig, which I guess, you know may not have been perfect, the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Commission that was actually voted for by local people in communities and then regional representatives. We don't have any of that sort of empowerment, um, self-determination anymore. There's hand-picked councils echoed a bit of that with the Uluru Convention. Obviously, still a lot of strong people, but it still felt like a bit of a pants pantomime that played out in a certain way. Yeah, with treaty, I mean, you know, we talk about some of the impacts on cultural continuity that the intervention affected in the law courts, cultural considerations, permit system in the communities, intervention also was a precursor to the Shire's takeovers, which heavily impacted anti-communities, taking away assets, empowerment of local governance structures. Going back to treaty, there was a group last week came to Central Australia to do a cultural exchange near Miripi at the oldest existing ochre mine in the world. And so I guess in a way they're trying to, I guess, take some of that power back themselves by continuing that culture themselves, documenting, and then using that as legal evidence to push their own case for that sovereignty. So perhaps, you know, perhaps it is time we'll just start, you know, actually getting to do it ourselves and pushing it out ourselves instead of trying to speak out to those who we know actually benefit or continually profit from being able to subjugate us and keep us down in the gutters. You know, we want to get back some of that autonomy, self-determination, do national anti-racism campaigns. We've got to take that decision-making back ourselves. First Nations people in the Northern Territory need to have that full, free, prior and informed consent well, from the people affected, and have those decisions or policies and systems that are consistent with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So, I might leave it there for now. Probably got plenty more, plenty more notes. Um so, yeah. yeah, if you have
1: some questions too. Or so. Just got a couple and I should say somebody has posted the link to the ABC Late Line, which was a oh, yeah. of the story that started the intervention. And obviously from your extensive knowledge of media, I wondered if you could give a, perhaps your reflections on the role of the mainstream media in the intervention and then the very important role that First Nations media has played in countering that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean... Um, I'm sure most of us, or plenty of us, would know that Four Corners had the prosecutor, I think, Nanette Rogers. And sort of, yeah, I guess they cherry picked a lot of these cases, or a few very severe cases of child abuse and domestic violence in some of the remote communities, which sort of painted and painted all the communities, everyone. And then also led to that month later, it's the late line one, and then featured the so called youth worker. That was happened to be just happened to be a Brough, then Indigenous Affairs Minister. Um, one of his staffers, incognito. And I remember, I think a year after two thousand eight, we had a conference at Urara, and Chris Graham, who was with New South Wales Aboriginal Land Council, did a tracker magazine, and then New Matilda came with uh, a then young Amy McGuire, and they did a breakdown of the late-line program. And yeah, sort of showed it up for again the facade and bullshit show that it was. That just proved there was, you know, a strategy and this uh, fallacy playing out to serve certain interests. I mean, the other thing I should point out was I think we'd seen Aboriginal representation in conservative parties before, but it really came out really strong uh, with the lead up to the intervention. best in and just enterprise. Warren Mundines, Anthony Dillon, you know, these black conservatives really came to the fore. Yeah, there's a few others in there. <laughs> we sort of know who they are. That was an interesting development as far as, you know, sort of felt like really had uh, native police coming out again, <laughs> coming after their own, even Noel Pearson. I mean, the invention, I, re- I remember some of the laws and restrictions that came in also affected Queensland communities, Uh, back home, Mornington Island, up in the Gulf. um, Yeah, the mainstream really, really went with the government lines. I think we had the Rivers of Grogg, all of those sorts of lines. So it was hard to try and challenge that. First Nations community media usually struggles as it is when you've got so much um, this wave against us as well. I guess in a way it sort of fuels you to keep that fire in the belly going. But yeah. Yeah, so much to cover. You know, one day you're talking about the apartheid in Woolworths where there's a line just for Aboriginal people on the income management basics card. The next day you're going out to counter camp where um, a SWAT team has chased a car full of Yapa Aboriginal people because they saw a toy gun on the uh, dashboard. Yeah, it's um, crazy how much... um sort of stuff was going down. I mean, even now the continuation, sort of even the mentality, because yeah, obviously living in town, I didn't have to live under the regime as much as people in the town camps, which were classed as remote communities as well, just so they could put the same restrictions as the other 70 odd communities. But yeah, yeah, you know, when it was announced, there's like I think Tony Abbott was the health minister then, was talking about doing Sexual abuse tests on every Aboriginal child in the Northern Territory, which included my own children. And I was like, what? You're going to fiddle with my kids to see if they've been fiddled with? No way. Wouldn't let this happen. And of course, they shut that down pretty quick. But it was just the audacity and sort of this license they gave themselves to sort of think that they could do whatever they want. And, and that sort of mentality that came through with everyone in town and sort of, I guess, across the country as well to sort of oh yeah, We're we're entitled now we got license to put it over use mobs again or actually feel free to do that as well. <laughs> Sorry, sort of on a bit, yeah can <laughs> be <me> wired up <laughs>
1: thanks for that. Obviously one of the things that you've covered after extensive coverage of the intervention was the Royal Commission into Dondale and further looking at the treatment of young people in the Northern Territory in the criminal justice system. And I just wondered if you could share your reflections on that, considering you'd already been advocating against many of the things that were then found by the Royal Commission. And obviously now we've just seen other legislation brought through. So it's just going to get your thoughts on that.
2: Yeah. I mean, as far as, Youth Detention, Dondale. I did an article for Indigenous X maybe a month or so ago that mentioned my introduction to First Nations media came through SBS Insight program doing a show on mandatory sentencing. Yeah, I was at about 20 years ago. And so, yeah, we did a short documentary on how mandatory sentencing breached uh, the UN Convention on the rights of the child, which included First Nations peoples and detention, imprisonment being a last resort. And so, you know, it's like that's over 20 years ago and we're still sort of coming back around, dealing with the same issues. You know, the bail law changes, um, the expansion of youth prisons here in Mbandu Alice Springs uh, Youth Detention Centre and in Dondale. Kai has said that the Alice Springs expansion is under construction and you saw it a couple of weeks ago. There was also the push for cashless welfare card, the income management welfare quarantining silver card, the evolution of the basics card, I guess, sort of just reinforces that fact of, you know, this industry around repression of peoples, which which we've seen with um, welfare quarantining income management there isn't exclusively about our First Nations can impact um, everyone as well. Even here in town, maybe it's a bit of a flow on as well from intervention stuff with the further stripping back, defunding of our services and programs, Seen a lot more community in town. It did gives more license uh, for that <coughs> racism to come up. People, again, sort of blaming Aboriginal people and communities. Yet at the same time, you know, sort of feeding off Aboriginal people, you know, this town uh, wouldn't survive if it didn't rely on Aboriginal dollars as well. And yet, yeah, same with the prison industrial complex as well. Same thing as income management, it sort of feeds off, keeping us, pushing us down as well.
1: That's Kumanjai Bumbeji Hotter What. You've also been listening to Amelia Kunath Monks and before that Auntie Elaine Peckham. They were taking part in the series of online forums The Endless Intervention First Nations Speak Out held earlier this year to mark the 14th anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response. It was organised by Stop the Intervention Sydney Intervention Rollback Action Group, Mipartway Alice Springs and Concerned Australians. That's the show for this week us again next week when we bring you the final episode in our series on the endless intervention the perspective of policy reviews
0: you're not serious about good things for our community unless you've got our people on board and if you're listening and you know they like to go on and on and on about accountability and transparency and all those things well put your money where your mouth is well actually it's not even their money the money that they used was our money the IBA money and probably defence money So they're robbing us and abusing us in the same process, eh? Disgusting behaviour. And people should know this. So the IBA money is really coming from royalties, which is mining on their land. Now, most Aboriginal people are saying no to mining because of uh, the damage to the environment and all sorts of things. But occasionally, our people will agree to mining if they think there's going to be benefits to the community and, of course, royalties, which then they can probably do things themselves. However... That's not the case. It's stockpiled, very difficult to get at. And now, as we see, being spent for wrong purpose to further their gains or their needs or their whatever, their little games and abuse us. And, you know, it's been said for many, many, many years, we are the industry and it rings true and it stays true because there's no fallback from that position of use and abuse of the First Nations people. They are illegally occupying our land, raping and pillaging both the land and the environment and the people, and it's got to stop. Australia's got to wake up. I know it's very hard to know exactly what the position is in this country when we're not taught. It's not in the learning centers, it's not in the school. People are behind the eight ball and knowing the truth about this country, but we have to, through our processes, broaden that knowledge, do more in the schools, more in the communities, right across the board. People have got to know the real true history. I know we've been saying it for that long, but we've got to keep on saying it and we've got to keep on doing it because as much as the people from Australia, new people arriving in Australia every day, as we speak, are equally clueless. This is really important because we're such a minority within this country and we can't do it all. And I believe in people power to turn things around no matter what issue we're talking about. And we need everybody out there. We need the people to action things and to jump up and down and scream and get the government in a headlock or an arm lock or whatever it is what we need to do. Um, that doesn't work, well, something else will work. We can't give up and we have to bring that message home. On the government side and also on the people side, the people of Australia, we've got to up the ante in getting our messages out about the actual um, political scenes that we have to live with on a day-to-day basis. It's almost like they are a law unto themselves and there's no stopping them, but we have to find the ways to stop them.
1: Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.